0: Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, produced in Sydney, Australia. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining me. Now today we speak to Joe Elliott, fantastic guitar player. Joe spent over 30 years playing professionally in Los Angeles, working as a sideman, music director, a composer, doing plenty of uh, TV scores, movie soundtracks, gazillions of live gigs. He also uh, did a lot of teaching at the Guitar Institute. In fact, he spent over well over 20 years there and ended up being the director of education for the Musicians Institute, which oversees the Guitar Institute and all the other arms there. So a really amazing career. He's put out a couple of solo albums. His latest is called Truth Serum, which is absolutely fantastic. The album's got fusion-y elements, some Latin stuff, lots of groove and funk some fantastic arranging by Joe, some horn and string lines and Joe's ensemble is killer so it's a great album. The guitar tones, oh man, so good courtesy of uh, a magical Marshall JCM and um, Joe's custom Kellerman guitar but as they say it's all in the fingers and um, Joe's got a just a really great musical voice so Looking forward to sharing not only the conversation, but some of uh, some of those album tracks with you. It was fascinating talking to Joe and hearing about his really building a career from, from the absolute ground up when, uh, as a young player and then moving to LA and just building some connections and friendships that have lasted to this day. Joe talks about working with Scott Henderson, um, Keith Wyatt, TJ Helmrich, uh, Brett Garsett, a whole bunch of people in his time there and um, yeah building the giant LA rack eventually putting that away all that kind of stuff all those great guitar stories now I need to thank Jude Gold our good friend Jude Gold Jude hooked me up with Joe Um, Jude also um, got to know Joe through Musicians Institute when, when Jude was working there so thank you very much Jude Gold we owe you one buddy By the way, if you're listening to this podcast but you haven't heard Jude's podcast yet, get over there. Not yet, after this show, but then get over there. No guitar is safe. An excellent show. One of my favorites for sure. Okay, Joe Elliott. Let's hear a bit of this guy's composing and guitar playing. This is a track from the Truth Serum album. It's called Distant Early Warning. And from there, we'll go on to our conversation with Joe Elliott. Joe Elliott, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Now, you, um, I understand, grew up in Indiana. What what was your start on guitar?
1: Well, uh, my my parents, uh, my father was a a minister, and so we moved about every four or five years to a new town, to a new church. And uh, when we moved up to Iowa, when I was about... I don't know, eleven or so. Wanted to play guitar, and in my uh, in my junior high school, the general music teacher she had a guitar there, and they had baritone ukuleles, which are the top four strings guitar, uh-huh. for the music class. And man, I, as soon as I could get my hands on one, I started playing one. My older brothers and sisters were all listening to all the the pop and soul and music of the time, and my dad was listening to big band jazz music and my mom was listening to classical music so I was the last one in the chain and I was the one that wanted to play music so I was fortunate to have this uh, junior high teacher who was very nurturing by uh, letting me play her guitar and and just kind of you know giving me some tools.
0: That's great. Sounds like you had some good listening amongst the uh, family as well. Good broad range of stuff that you were that you got to listen Absolutely. to in the house.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it, and it, you know, it, it, it goes, I can feel the influences of it today here as a, as a no longer young man, you know, I mean, it's, that's, I still, I've always had broad taste in music and appreciation for anything that's played well and written well.
0: Awesome. Did you, um, did you have any opportunity to play in bands or was there, um, did you end up playing in church? Was that an option for a guitar player? <laughs>
1: oh a little bit uh that was um you know in the early in the 70s uh you know even in the the catholic and the protestant churches uh you know acoustic guitars were being used in services and they were trying to integrate but most of my uh playing was you know i wanted to form a rock band so mm-hmm. i was kind of living in two worlds on on sunday i was at church with mom and dad and family but you know during the week whenever i could get uh, my buds together to 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 jam we'd play so you know right away i think i was about 13 and 14 i first got my first guitar i started a band and you know we were we didn't know much but we 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 did know that we wanted to be in a rock band so Mm -hmm. um yeah so we started uh we started playing uh we actually there were there were gigs to play uh even when i was in junior high even if they were school-sponsored dances on a thursday okay. afternoon yeah. after school you get to you had the opportunity to to play in front of an audience and feel feel that coming back you know so yeah i was very fortunate in, in junior high to do that and then in high school we had moved to uh, montana which is a very rural state and uh i joined i formed and joined bands there and we had many opportunities to perform live uh we we would drive out to the the surrounding ranch towns and farm towns and play homecoming dances and and uh uh, you know proms in the spring and uh there were just lots of opportunities to play i mean i made i made a decent amount of money in high school just running running being a band leader and running running the the rock and pop bands i was i was playing
0: that's great what what sort of material would you guys do
1: well, those were the days of um, the Doobie Brothers, beginning of ZZ Top, but uh, at different times we had horn sections. We were in, we loved Chicago, and we loved uh, you know I was a big fan of Terry Kath, the original guitarist of mm-hmm. of Chicago, Chicago yeah. um, and uh, you know whatever the the all the top forty pop stuff at the time. Uh, And a big fan of the Doobie Brothers back then and very, very broad taste in music. But we we played uh, nearly every weekend and a couple nights a weekend uh, from my junior and senior year of high school, which was, you know, incredible experience. Just not really knowing what you're doing, just learning by performing and making mistakes and judging audience reaction and and all of that. Great experience. Great education.
0: Fantastic, and it sounds like a rich um, bunch of songs you are learning in terms of you know getting a guitar playing together. Who are the guitar players you are looking up to at this stage?
1: Well, I certainly back then I mentioned Terry Kath. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, I you know he was uh, such a phenomenal guitar player, and, and so such an unusual combination of talent for that era. You know there are, there are great stories of Jimi Hendrix being in awe of Terry Kath, mm-hmm. and um, Yet, you know, harmonically, he could span the range from playing key center rock solos and very aggressive Hendrix-like things to uh, playing through chord changes uh, very gracefully and tastefully. But what I always liked from him was just his uh, very aggressive, um, appropriately aggressive uh, style he was he was uh, not somebody that back backed away from anything when he was soloing he was a tasty player but very aggressive besides him <clears throat> i i liked billy gibbons uh, a lot i liked uh um uh, the doobie brother guys tommy johnson was a, was a hero of mine joe walsh was the guy i loved to listen to yeah. um uh, <clears throat> and i would say uh through my high school years, those were the guys. I also liked Bruce Conte for Tower of Power. I was a big Tower of Power r and okay. funk yeah,
0: yeah. soul
1: band. And so that was a whole nother area. <clears throat> my brother, my, one of my brothers, uh, turned me on to Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, and that whole <clears throat> uh, funk guitar thing uh, got into my into my mind back then too and uh so i listened to an awful lot of that earth wind and fire was a big influence on me al okay. yeah. al steel chess mckay who was the uh, architect for a lot of those great tower or uh, excuse me uh, earth wind and fire parts are a big influence and uh then i heard uh, the george benson breezen record okay uh, that came yeah, out yeah. when i was a senior in high school i thought wow this is a this is cool. <laughs> What's this? <clears throat> so, you know, I keep chasing shiny objects when it comes to guitar players and music.
0: <laughs> That's great. That's interesting because when I hear you're playing now and um, we'll, we'll talk about your new album um, as well, I'm really keen to dig into that. But I hear, I do hear all those things now that you mention them. I hear like an aggressive uh, digging in, which is, which you don't always hear with that West Coast kind of influence. Um and yet, there's groove and there's funk as well. So you're actually were well, hearing all this really as a young man. That's very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, it just I, I I've really had an interesting and and, and fun career. Just uh, you know, not only the the range of things, styles that I've gotten to do performing and with the some of the level of musicians that I've gotten to play with in all these different styles, but also just because of my life as an educator too. Uh, teaching at GAT for so many years and being exposed and teaching alongside of all those great guys and all the great students, yeah. and then moving to the Twin Cities here in Minnesota, which is such a rich uh, music scene here and uh-huh. and the whole Prince influence here. Uh, it's I've had a uh, uh, I've had a really fun career, you know, so far, and a lot of but but a wide range of experiences. So. It's hard to nail it all down. It's not a simple story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned GIT. When did you decide to move there to study? Cuz you were first a student before you were teaching there, is that right?
1: I was. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I learned about uh, GIT in, back in 1970s, 8 or 9. It was just a young thing and I okay. and I was uh, attending Montana State University as a music major. And we took a, our band director took us down there our big band for a jazz festival and there was a a guitarist Mundell Lowe who was one of the new teachers there and he was he did a clinic and and he was you know pumping up the school and I said wow I gotta get I gotta find out about this place because at that time I'd been by that time I'd been exposed to another big influence of mine which was Larry Carlton and Robin Ford those guys were big big heroes of mine yeah and so I had my sights on LA I thought that's where I gotta go I gotta get out of Montana and get down there and uh so he told me about this school and i thought wow that sounds perfect and i um uh, when i got back home from that trip i did some research i don't know how you did research back then didn't go online probably <laughs> i don't know yes. how i did i probably checked guitar player magazine or something yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and anyway i applied and i was accepted and that was about 1980 but uh or 80 79 but i um uh, I, uh, had just gotten married as a super young man. And, uh, I also joined a band that went on the road. For, well, uh, yeah, well, first I had moved, we did move down to LA and, uh, my goal was to go to school there, but the money wasn't there. And I was unhappy with the band I was playing at. My wife was 20 year old girl who was not digging LA. Okay. <laughs> so we, we packed up and left and, um, ended up going on the road for about four years all across america and canada touring with uh uh, back when the club scene was just hot in america i mean Mm -hmm. it was just amazing there were bands everywhere and there was work everywhere and uh, so when that was done about 85 i I finally got to go to gat okay and and i had matured a lot as a person and player so i was really ready to accept the information I was about to get, you know? So it was, it was actually, it all worked out pretty well. Cause I had four years of, of hard road playing, you know, we're talking six nights a week, yeah, wow. 52 weeks a year. So I, I had, uh, I was ready, you know, and it was a fantastic experience to be uh, around all those players. I met Scott Henderson and Frank and Bali and Joe Diorio and got to play with Joe pass in in uh private settings and wow. and wow. you know some all these guys that I'd only dreamed about yeah. were sitting right there and I could talk to them and I could ask them questions and so uh it was a really uh a game changer for me moving moving to LA the second time yes, and staying yes. and then being exposed to all these people who really set the bar obviously quite high
0: it seems to me like by the mid 80s GIT was really hitting its stride though. So for you to land there back there at, at you know at that stage seems like um seems like good timing.
1: I would I would say that. Yeah, because it was um it had it had matured to the point where it was attracting I mean there were a lot of guitar players there. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, the upside of that and the downside of that. The upside of that is that if you've got 350 guitar players the, the chances for fifty or a hundred of those to be really good is much higher than if you you know it's a percentage game. So of yeah. they were, and so that that also allowed the school to hire even more great people to be on on staff there, and uh, so you just it was just a fantastic experience, uh, and I owe a lot to so many teachers there who were genuinely uh, interested in sharing their gifts, you know all i can say about that so
0: i was gonna ask what led to you um taking a teaching role then so you i guess towards the end of your time there was was that opportunity becoming clear or how did that come about
1: while i was a, stu- a student um uh the late great ross bolton who uh, was al joro's g- guitarist for for many many years who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago uh, ross started uh call he knew of my you know a lot of the teachers knew that i had a lot of experience before i came there because i had done a lot of gigs and i started wow. subbing for ross and some other teachers wow and they they would call me to play the gigs cuz i you know i had uh, a ver, uh i had the versatile versatile gene you know i could i could move into a lot of things just because of the experience i'd had playing before in, and yeah. in, in funk r&b rock settings, country settings, even jazz, and um, so, I, you know, I just kind of got in with the guys, and like you said, that was a period of time when and when uh, MI, Musicians Institute, and specifically G.A.T., which is the guitar yeah. component of MI, was really growing, <clears throat> and uh, they needed guys, and so, I mean, I started teaching right after I graduated, which was... An amazing uh you know stroke of luck i guess i could call it luck or whatever but it was a, a good thing for me because it it all of a sudden i i had a steady gay, day gig that was uh afforded me the luxury of being around all these great guys and great players uh and you know if 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 you just roll into la without any connections it's a rough place right <clears throat> okay and to have a platform uh to work from like a gig like that where you know uh, at first i didn't have health insurance and i don't i don't want to talk about boring stuff like that but those are real world things i mean how are you going to pay your rent how are you going to you know how are you going to support yourself while you're pursuing your you know you're supporting your music habit you know (laughs) through through, through something right absolutely so for me it was uh it was great and uh um, you know, I started teaching a couple days a week to start with, and um, within a couple years, there was a teacher there who's now at USC. His name's Richard Smith, who's a fine guitarist. And Richard was doing a lot of classes, and uh, he left to go uh, take over the guitar department at USC. And uh, Ron Benson, who was running the guitar department, along with Keith Wyatt. <clears throat> um, at uh, GIT said you want Richard's schedule and I said yes I do <laughs> so all of a sudden my, my gig went from a couple days a week to a full-time gig where I was teaching classes and you know helping write with curriculum and, and that kind of thing so it uh, again after a couple of years of that of uh, just teaching there I, I moved into an, a nice spot there which which really afforded me the luxury of not starving you know, yeah. and I know it sounds kind of funny, but if you just if you just show up in LA without too many connections, it's it's a tough place, especially you know back then. And and I don't know what it would be like today to to roll in there. Um, I would imagine it'd be about the same. It's, it, I'm sure it hasn't gotten any easier. You know, sure.
0: sure. Well, that's the thing. There's there's always this romantic idea that you'll you'll go off somewhere and make it or, or get your foot in the door somehow. But if If you're struggling to put food on the table and and a roof over your head, that does not leave a lot of creative energy to actually make great music.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And it erodes your self-esteem. I've seen it. You know, I've taught thousands of guitar players in my career, and most of them in my 23 years at, at GAT mm-hmm. and you see people come in from all over the world and they're eager and there's energy and there's hope and, 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 and there's all that. And, and, you know, I always, I, I you turn into a, a sort of a, a, a mock shrink, uh, when you're there and, okay. when, and okay, whenever yeah. you're dealing with students, because you're sure. trying to, uh, prop keep people propped up. And uh, don't you know, you don't want people to get discouraged because that's the biggest enemy to creativity and people reaching their potential. Is mm-hmm. if you know, you've got to feel good about yourself and your chances, and you need to feed that, that your art a monster, you know. And when you're just struggling and things just aren't going well, <clears throat> it's devastating. And so much talent gets well, it just never gets realized because of those kind of things. So, you can imagine for me. Uh, having the opportunity to, uh, you know, be able to teach during the day and play and write and record at night. And uh, it was, uh, uh, I look back on it now and I, I got really lucky. So I feel really, really fortunate about that.
0: Yeah, sure. But with also the the skill base and all your hard work, I'm sure, um, led into all that as well. I think it sounds to me like a perfect storm of actually you really working hard, uh, and also being in the right place at the right time, I think uh, there was no substitute for your hard work either. It seems like you were gigging a lot as well and um, doing lots of uh, recording dates. That that point you mentioned is really interesting about LA, and that was my impression that there, there seemed to be so much work there, but absolutely so many guitar players. Yeah. So you kept busy, though. Tell me about some of the gigs that, that you landed and that you were doing.
1: When I was in in LA, uh, I did uh, a, just a wide range of things. I mean, <clears throat> right when I got done with GAT, uh, I had you know consciously spread myself out as wide as, as possible. I was playing with a with a big seven piece uh, excuse me nine piece tower power type horn band uh, called Balance that was produced by Emilio Castillo. Uh, tower yeah, awesome. uh, and then I was playing in a rockabilly band uh, with a songwriter I was doing my own uh, band uh, fusion you know four piece uh, guitar instrumental stuff uh, I was playing in an Elvis band I was I was playing in a country <laughs> band Yeah, I was playing in a couple top 40 I was in seven different things at the same time and that's not an exaggeration uh-huh. and uh, now they weren't all playing every night of the week but over the course of a month Uh, I probably would, you know, play with all these things. And so uh, a really interesting connection happened for me. Uh, I got hooked in with uh, a lot of the uh, East L.A. guys. And uh, the whole – it's a blend of Latin – all Latin styles that happens in East LA. It's not just Mexican American. There are Cuban Americans there from all over Latin America. There are, are people in and musicians who live in East LA. And that turned into a whole nother, uh, music experience for me learning from the street guys, uh, a lot of, about Latin music. And, uh, there are a lot of artists, uh, there, um, Balance was one of the bands. It was a a singer named Mike Menes, who so many great musicians in LA have gone through his band, salsa, his big big band, salsa band, and um, so that was a big experience for me. Um, I I spent an awful lot of time of my time playing uh, my music. Uh, as often as I could in, in the, the the jazz club, The Baked Potato, in L.A. I don't know if you know that name oh, of that absolutely. club, but it's a legendary and, club. Right. So um, I uh, also did uh, an R&B uh, band with, uh, uh, Carol Rogers from Sergio Mendez band. It started off being a Brazilian band that we uh-huh. put together, but it, it evolved into a, uh, backbeat, almost a Tina Turner, R&B type band. And we worked the big potato quite often. And that was a fun gig. I did, uh, a lot of session work for songwriters. Uh, you know, a lot of a demo work. Um, and then my life was also, uh, you know, obviously consumed, um, in ninety-seven, by uh, in nineteen ninety-seven, they, I was asked to be the department head for the guitar program for GAT. Yeah, and fantastic. so suddenly, you know, that started consuming more of my time, and then in two thousand uh not because i pursued it i ended up being vp of education there which is essentially the dean running the education part of the school okay and um and does that cover that, all
0: of the schools is that um not yeah, only the guitar I was, school but the
1: right the other areas? so i what i would do i would supervise the department heads for for the guitar bass drum keyboard vocal recording film music business I they were uh, they those were all my responsibility the all those department heads and that was uh that was a massive job that I never, I never asked for, <laughs> but ended up doing for for uh, you know eight eight years and uh, okay. and so my during that time, I really scaled back a lot of my performing. I did my gigs, uh, my own you know fusion thing at the at the Big Potato, mm-hmm. and I did uh, you know some of the other ones, but I just there just wasn't the bandwidth to to uh, sure, be sure. be out every night, you know just it wasn't happening and I was raising four children at the same time yeah. with my wife so mm-hmm. you know all that takes your t- takes your time so. yeah absolutely but I never stopped uh, you know writing and uh, you know I've always of course been playing I kept my chops up through all that and because uh, uh, you know that was just a priority for me mm-hmm. so
0: what what did your rig look like around that time so late 90s
1: yeah what's, well, what's an LA guy
0: the- playing on the geek. <laughs>
1: I had rack back in 91 <laughs> or 92. We all did. And yeah. <laughs> so before that I had a uh, I got to tell you what I used before that was a a, a Mesa Boogie Mark 2B that I bought in 1984. 85. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and, awesome. And which I own again today, the very same amplifier. Oh, really? Exact amplifier. But in about 91 or 92 everybody was going to racks okay. and so uh you know, I was looking at it. So I asked scott henderson what to buy you know Mm because i just you know some of these guys had the time and the money or or maybe i should say they were they took the time (laughs) to (laughs) to really check out all the gear and and everything and they were and uh so scott made some recommendations back then on what he did so at that time my it's the rack is there's a picture of it on my website actually and it's got a uh it's got a uh a boogie quad preamp yep, yep which was uh designed to be four preamps in one so you could have four presets and the power stage was a boogie 295 power amp then in between that i had um oh, i think i had an old midi verb i had a couple micro verbs mm-hmm. i had a uh s even as SDR one thousand delay, which was the same one that I think uh, Holdsworth used. I know Scott Henderson used it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I bought all I bought all these things and I put it together, and it just sounded like hell. You know, it just sounded. <laughs> all of a sudden, the guts were gone, and and I thought, really, you know, you just don't buy the stuff, and it doesn't magically sound good. So. <laughs> Scott was uh, was kind enough to invite me over to his house. Cause I was just, you know, I don't think I was quite in tears, but but I was, you know. He had such a phenomenal sound, and he yeah, was, yeah. you know, was a still a guitar player I look up to a lot okay. because yep. of all kinds of reasons that are obvious. So I took my my pile of stuff in my rack over to to Scott's house, and he had in his living room he had his stuff set up, and so we set up my stuff side by side, and it was, you know there was it was pitiful how how i sounded compared to his but he made a couple s- small adjustments that were that were uh, just amazing one was was to make this thing a stereo rig okay and yeah. so we we took uh we took the, the 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 basic fundamental thing that that changed my life and why i'm a still a stereo guy to this day is we took this old uh Effectron 1024 delay unit that everybody had in PAs back in the 70s and 80s. Everybody had an Effectron. And so what we did was split the signal coming out of the preamp, and one side went through this Effectron and then off, you know, onto the left side, Mm -hmm. and the other side went to the right side. Well, the right side was the the straight signal uh, time-wise that came out of the preamp. The left side, the Effectron uh, we, the mix was a hundred percent and it was delayed about five or 10 milliseconds uh-huh. and detuned slightly. Yep. So that all of a sudden this dimension happened and, and, yeah, I, and right. I, it just, it blew me away. And, <laughs> and that That's was, right. um, that was a, a, a real moment, you know, uh, f- for me, because all of a sudden I had, I went from this puny little th- sound and there, were, I mean, there were other adjustments we made to things in the rack too, but, um, but, uh, that was major and then and then that has SDR 1000 I don't know if you're familiar with that old piece of gear yeah, it's a definitely. single space rack and and um, yeah and and you know the 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 simple principles of of rack building like splitting the signal detuning one side mm-hmm. uh and then uh EQing the long delays so that uh, they're more of a shadow than okay. uh, than a irritating replicate replica you know sure so uh, I'd say those are those were the the big uh, rack discoveries uh, or I would say you know things that Scott helped me get get to and then okay. I I used that rack god almost um, 90 early 90s I made very few, little changes in that thing for 15 years probably and okay. then you know everybody started fading away from racks and I got tired of hauling it around sure uh, when I when i didn't have somebody to do it for me well, those, so,
0: those 295s uh, are heavy and that's that's just the power amp and that plus you got other stuff in there
1: i know well it was it was it was ridiculous you know i it, it uh, <laughs> i had a special special thing in the back of my pickup that where i could you know carry it around town uh, comfortably but uh yeah what's... i still have it it sits out in my garage here in minnesota uh-huh. and uh Every now and then I, I open it up and go, Yep, there it is, you know. But uh, <laughs> What what yeah. speakers were you using? EVLs. And okay. They were yeah. co- teal cabinets and I still have those too. Yep. And uh those are I closed up the ports and they're closed back cabinets. Oh, okay. So they had a yep. lot of punch. Yep. And they threw a long way.
0: So uh, 112s, pretty unforgiving
1: 112s. one twelve. One twelve yeah, each cabinet had one twelve Okay. And,
0: okay. Yeah. Yeah, those and I would those EVs—they tell it like it is.
1: They're very unforgiving, so uh, <laughs> I, I I still have them, and uh, I, I'm kind of a pack rat with old old stuff. So sure. uh, someday I, I, you know, the rack probably just has to go, and unless there's some some uh, Renaissance period. <laughs> I don't
0: know. Yeah, the I mean racks were huge down here as well, and um, the moment for me was when I, I noticed I was. Just slipping one or two pedals back into my signal chain. And uh uh-huh. eventually everything just went back. Uh right. it's what we saw down here anyway.
1: Yeah. Well then I had you know, I had uh I had an early version of the uh, ground control. You know oh, okay. the switching
0: system. The foot switching, yeah, yeah. And
1: uh, the guy who wired who eventually really wired my rack. Uh, in a very professional way. He was a, a guy he has been a friend of mine since the 80s. His name's Curtis Lar, And he's a... Uh, Curtis is a, has been a guitar tech for everybody, from Guns N' Roses to Def Leppard to... He's worked with John Bryan quite a bit, T-Jo, T-Bone Burnett. I uh, mean, he's toured with, with everybody. Dwight Yoakam. I, I can't remember who he's with right now. And I'm going to LA next week, I hope, mm-hmm. to see him. But uh, Curtis, I don't know, somewhere in there probably not long after my my amazing experience with uh at Scott's house uh he really wired it up in a, in a proper way with the right cable and length of cable and all that but but he got me hooked in with this uh um, that ground control thing and at that time speaking of pedals we we did include some pedals in the back because I had so many options and so many loops
0: okay yeah yeah you
1: know i think i had a I, I've got I, it's the stuff is still in the back. I mean, there's a, there's a Rat pedal in there that uh-huh. I used for some o- kind of overdrives and and an Octaver and I, I can't remember what else is back there. Probably a Phase 90 or something. And uh, but those were just in loops. But that was an early switching system, mm-hmm. uh, the ground control, and it was pretty slick. You know, it was a it was a pretty. Uh, creative thing that happened to Racks when all of a sudden you didn't have to do the dance, uh, tapping pedals. You know. Yeah,
0: absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. What what guitars were you playing back then? Um, I
1: have a 1979 Fender Strat, maple neck, ash body, and I have an ES335. And those were my main guitars. I've got a 59. Martin Acoustic that I've had since I was in high school to 0018E there's a picture of that on my website I've too. seen
0: that it's got a big pickup in the sound hall It's a
1: fact, factory pickup Yeah and wow. I've since put a um, uh, Another pickup in that thing that sounds fantastic I'm going to I'm gonna embarrass myself and not remember the name of the pickup the guy put in here for me But it's a um, uh, that guitar sounds fantastic. In uh, early '90s, uh, a friend of mine built uh, a custom Strat for me that I still play today. A builder named Ted Kellison up in Montana. Okay, yeah. And um, on my website is a picture of this red Strat, and um, I, you know, I've been playing that guitar for God, 26 years now, and uh, it's just it's home for me. Okay. And it's yep. got a wide range of of tones. I mean. I do a fair amount of R&B, funk, rhythm guitar playing here, and it's got all of that that I need. Uh, I can get up on the neck pickup, roll off the high end, and get a credible jazz tone out of it. Uh, I can move into any of the positions. I can go on the on the, the bridge pickup and uh, crank it up. On the album, I used uh, T.J. Helmerich's Marshall that everybody in, in L.A. seems to use okay. <laughs> for, for recordings, and it sounds great with that with that Marshall okay. as well. Yep, so yep. it's a very versatile Strat. So uh, I've been playing the same same basic guitars for a long time. I bought other ones that I use for as tools for things if if uh, if the session calls for that. You know, if I have a. A telly, and I've got a godan, and I've got a a VGA Excalibur that I rarely play. That's a beautiful guitar. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to have a bunch more Gibsons, I had a ES330, uh, which is a a 335 without the wood block, and I had an ES350 and uh, i do have a howard roberts fusion guitar which is uh oh, okay was given to me on my graduation day from git wow and uh that's a that's a fantastic axe as well so there are, pictures of all of them are on the website so
0: yeah i've had that's a really i've had to scroll through man it's it's awesome that Kellison guitar does that have 23 frets
1: yeah that's what everybody says and <laughs> and the story behind that was Ted's building. He goes, how many frets you want on, on this thing? And I said, well, how many can you get me in there? And he says, well, I think I can give you a 23. I said, All right, give me 23. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, uh, couldn't quite get 24 with that neck pickup where it needed to be. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh,
0: that's the thing with 24, the, the neck pickup. It's just not quite in the right spot.
1: Right. So, you know what? I, to me, it's not weird. I mean, if I, if, if, if I need an E, yep. it's a half step bend, and I'm there. Yep. And, um, So, um, yeah, and the, the, uh, the, uh, fretboard on that guitar is, uh, it's 120 year old Brazilian rosewood that was harvested before it was illegal. He bought a, he bought a cache of that stuff, uh, years and years ago when he was starting out as a builder and, uh, it's, it's beautiful, uh, rosewood and, uh. But uh, yep, that's that's the main guitar.
0: Fantastic! And are they the original pickups?
1: Yeah, uh, those are uh, you know Duncan 57 in the back, and then yep. uh, uh, those uh, uh, bar pickups in the front. Yeah, the like middle. kind of the single
0: so, coils with the rail. Yep. Rail kind of thing.
1: Yeah, nice. and it's you know very versatile. Really versatile guitar, uh, sound-wise, tone-wise. So that's why I can use it for so many different things. Yeah, so. cool.
0: Hey, let's talk about your um, your latest album, Truth Serum, which I'm assuming has a lot of that guitar on there.
1: It's pretty much only that guitar on there. There's there's very. Uh, I don't think I use much of anything else on that. There's a couple a couple tracks for uh, my nylon string. Dodan is is in their back somewhere and i think i might have used the 79 strat for a couple rhythm tracks Uh but uh all of the anything that's of course it's all instrumental so all the all the leads and and mainline the head stuff is all done on that kellison strat yeah
0: awesome fantastic there's some great tracks one of my favorites is uh i don't know if i'm gonna pronounce this right Kalugida.
1: Kalugida. Kalugida. There's a really yeah, sweet uh, story that...
0: behind that name. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, well, my one of my older brothers and my sister, before I was born, when they were toddlers, would play out in the front of the house, in the gutter. And they would, uh, you know, they'd stand on the curb and they'd drag their sticks through the muck and the the goop that's in the in the gutter. <laughs> And, uh, you know, how little kids do when you're two and three years old, you just like to make that mess. And that word, Kaluji-da, you know, uh, I, it's one of those words that you know, I think my mom must have said, you know, what do you guys do? We're playing with the Kaluji-da or whatever it was. Some, <laughs> some, some you know, group of syllables came out of their mouth and then it became this family word, which is Kaluji-da, which, you know decades and decades later is still part of our, our larger family <laughs> vocabulary but kaluji dai is anything that's like clutter or or muck or you know it's it's a it's a catch-all term uh, that that's what it means so if you if you're cleaning out your garage you're you probably end up sweeping up a lot of kaluji dai in the end <laughs> so <laughs> i love that that's but um, it's a lot it's a it's a long 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 tune and it's yeah. got a lot of segments in it yep. and um, most you know all the pretty much all those tunes on, on that uh, on that album were written uh, as as you know they wanted I wanted to write songs I'm, I'm more of a songwriter I think than than really a guitar player but but I also they were vehicles for uh improvisation at Mm -hmm. at the baked potato gig to be honest i mean that's where those things were played the most you know um and so all those were written with that band in mind which was a great band at the time uh with steve weingard on keyboards and andre berry on bass and tim mcintyre on drums and there were other people who came in and played too
0: yeah cool there's a
1: great drum solo actually on that track yeah tim mcintyre from from calgary canada he's a he's a a teacher at at mi he's one of the uh long time drum instructors there okay. a great straight ahead bebop drummer too
0: yeah nice yeah that's probably one of the more fusiony tracks i guess there's some really cool unison kind of riffs going on
1: yeah i mean that's that's definitely the 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 most in your face one of the most in your face tunes on there mm-hmm that track, trying to have the aggression that can happen in a live performance come across the track was was uh, it, it, it's hard to do to, and make it uh, fit in with the rest of the tracks on the, on the album as well. So, um, but uh, I I was reasonably happy with the way we were able to keep some continuity through the through the production of the whole project. So
0: yeah, cool. Um, what else can we, I've made notes on on a bunch of songs I, I really enjoyed the album um, Ode to thank you was it Ode to Elaph
1: ode, ode to Elaph so what that means that's a play on words Elaph is a is a is an acronym for uh, 80s LA fusion <laughs> so and, and of course an that's ode great. is, is a, would be a song that would be you know a, a story about yeah, or okay. something in tribute to so mm-hmm. that song uh, actually, you know that thing was written since I've been in, in, in Twin Cities, and I, you know, when I was writing that, I thought, God, this just sounds like, that, the, like, you know, the the, the stuff Larry Carlton or, or Lee Rittenauer or any of those guys were doing in the early '80s. You know, I mean, it's definitely a throwback kind of sounding song. So it's ode, ode to Elaph. It's it's ode to uh, <laughs> early LA fusion.
0: that's just one of the tracks that's got some really great horn parts did you arrange those or were you involved in those parts
1: yeah 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 did did the uh the horn stuff i did on there um uh the uh the ballad the blues ballad tears is uh the horn stuff on that that's actually four trombones played by one guy oh, but wow. it's Beautiful. uh overlaid but uh, that was uh that was fun to arrange as well along with uh the strings, which are overlaid, and then uh actually after all that was done I brought in uh my good friend Ricky Peterson, who's um a great Hammond B three player yeah, yeah. who lives here and uh almost all the Hammond stuff on the album is, is Ricky. Okay. And uh it's just a uh what a what a spark in my life that guy's been moving here. Uh, Ricky's just um, a fantastic musician and producer and you know, was part of the Prince camp for many years. I mean, he was out at Paisley Park and he's uh, on tour with Stevie Nicks now and he's been with David Sanborn for 35 years. And so we've struck up uh, a great friendship here and are writing partners and and do a lot of work. But his contributions to the album were uh, significant in not only in playing, but just in, in uh, just advice about uh producing it because he's produced so many records and he's worked with all the great all the great new york (laughs) guys you name it he's he's been there with them. so uh gotta definitely give a shout out to him
0: awesome i was going to ask you about the um the afro-latin kind of vibe on on ferris but you've sort of already explained where that comes from from that back from those la kind of yeah
1: right i i was really uh fortunate to play with uh you know, nothing was very pure, one thing or another. I don't say that. That's that's with great respect. I say that, and uh, mm-hmm. there wasn't much of of the the Latin music I played in LA. It was purely one thing or another. It was such a great blend of a lot of different things. Yeah, because, right. uh, you know, maybe some of the, the the Tex-Mex things that I played were 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 pretty pure, but even that's a blend. I mean, all music is ultimately a a, a fusion of something. Uh, but that. Um, you know, I got to play uh, with some great Brazilian musicians. Um, the band I, I mentioned before uh, with Carol Rogers, who was Sergio Mendez's singer for so many years, she used to bring in to our band really great Brazilian musicians. Henato Neto, who's uh, just a phenomenal Brazilian keyboard player, he, he had Prince ties as well. Is, uh, you know ironically but uh you know when i got to play with those guys and and read those charts and sort of um uh, look under the hood of how those parts all fit together uh you know it can't help but rub off on you
0: yeah definitely that's that's awesome um ain't it great to be crazy you bust out some rock and roll chops over that one
1: <laughs> well it's you know i i if If I were, you know, it's kind of interesting to, in my mind, where where uh, where the influences come for for particular tunes, and and for me, that that tune is reminiscent of things that I picked up uh, through osmosis from larry carlton and robin ford to me i you know i don't hear the rock thing so much i hear i hear those guys mm-hmm. you know uh, how many hours i spent listening to those guys but it's it's aggressive and it's you know cindy dan sort of groove because yeah, I was, yeah. you know, that's, that's a band i listen to yep. an awful lot you know and so you, you you tend to to you know you you put everything all the input goes in your brain all these years and then it gets mixed up and that's what comes out you know
0: Well, with that song, yeah, I'm, I'm, my first thought is there's some rock kind of kind of a vibe, but then there's some tasty chord changes, which seems to be a mark of your work, pop in there as well.
1: There's the, well, there's a, there's a spot in the middle of ain't, "Ain't It Great to Be Crazy" where you know Steve Weingart plays this very ethereal uh, and harmonically complex solo, uh, and it's sort of floating and. Then we break it down and I'd I'd go completely the opposite direction, just, you know, straight ahead rock blues coming out of it, you know, just the, I I wanted that contrast. And so Mm -hmm. just straight gut rock blues coming out of it. So, um, that was intentional.
0: You mentioned uh tj helmich so you had his amp is that a jcm 800
1: yeah yeah cool there's a picture of it on the website too. <laughs> yeah awesome. uh, tj is a is uh i don't know if you've ever had tj on but tj is a uh he's been a friend of mine since the late 80s and okay. of yeah. course um i don't know how much of his work you know but you know not only is he a great guitar player but he's yeah. a, a great engineer and great sound smith uh for all kinds of things. I mean, he's well known for uh drum sounds and all sounds. Okay, and so, yep. uh uh I'm actually hooking up with TJ via phone tomorrow to go through some uh new amp plugins that I I want to get uh in uh, in my pro tools rig oh, OK, here. So, nice. Um but TJ uh got very generous with his time and gear uh on my first album which is not on the website or available years ago tj uh brought out his uh i don't know if you remember the juice extractor which was a power soak device yeah that we kind I, of scale down yeah right i yeah. came out of my boogie 295 uh-huh. into the juice extractor and of course the, the 295 is just cranked and cranked, everything's maxed <laughs> and then the juice extractor brings it down to just a whisper almost but with the, the sound of the tubes being worked so but uh tj's uh marshall on there uh he and brett said used have used that amp on i think almost all of their uh, uh records that okay, they've done together
0: okay, cool that's yeah, awesome so a- when i'm hearing your tone how much how much of the breakup because your breakup is so tasty how much of that is the is the marshal or are you pushing the front end of that with with any pedals or anything or are we mainly hearing the amp
1: it's all amp wow it's all amp, ex- except for there were three tunes that i did not use the marshal on and uh, that would be the the ballad tears the the blues ballad i was uh-huh. talking about yeah ode e laugh and then the uh, distant early warning and with those i ran those uh through a fender hot rod deluxe and i used greg cox um uh, called a gristle gristle ah uh, yeah
0: yeah yeah i've heard of so, this. so i don't know if
1: you do you know greg
0: Uh no of greg definitely yeah
1: yeah greg uh is a friend of mine and and uh we have him at at the college where i am here mcnally smith college of music we have him he was on staff here for one year, and then we have him back as artist in residence. So he's also another guy, great resource like like Scott Henderson or Alan Hines, uh-huh. these guys who are exposed to all this gear all the time, and you can call them up and say, hey, what do you think of this? And they've already done all the homework.
0: Yeah. You know? nice. <laughs>
1: so anyway that's a great difference. pedal that gristle tone is mm-hmm. is uh gristle king is is a great pedal it's got two stages of gain i use it in the pedal board all the time as uh it's just a clean boost and then there's uh the first stage of gain which is uh you know just that slight breakup yeah. for nice singing lines you know but but most of the most of the album is is just uh that uh tj's marshall and then a 57 mm-hmm. you know Fantastic. That's all it is. Fantastic. Simple.
0: I'm hearing you earlier mentioned um, that you're a stereo guy. I'm hearing the stereo delay, which is very, very subtle. So, are you adding that at the board afterwards?
1: On the album, yes. And it's, Mm -hmm. uh, we did it differently on different different cuts. Um, um, You know, I didn't go so far. There have been other projects where I've actually, you know, when I do rhythm guitar parts here, when when i've given control of it i double almost everything i'll play it and pan it left and right okay, you know yep. or, or instruct the engineer to do so uh or if i do it at home i you know and i'm sending stuff to somebody i'll ask them to you know this is how this should sound don't put it up the middle because it'll sound funny and out of phase. Yeah, sure. but um but the the, the the solo sounds on that um we had uh in some cases there's uh uh, a slight five millisecond delay that might be panned hard one way and the and the main sounds up the middle and then there are longer delays hard left and hard right okay. that are are timed yeah nice. Uh, nice one of the one of those sort of re- revelations that day with was guy henderson i talked about earlier was setting up your long delays 350 and 450 which i guess was the famous jeff beck setting okay uh and uh, of course, that's that's good for live if you don't have time to time everything. Yeah. And it, and if it's EQ'd right, it's it's the perfect shadow delay time. You know. Mm-hmm. So. What
0: well, what's your secret with EQing those long delays?
1: Well, that the secret is, is not much secret. I just cut the high end <laughs> off a lot. That's the you know. and i and and i don't boost any of the lows you you don't want uh extraneous noise what i don't want is the is the crack 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 of the of the delay just getting in the way sure but i also don't want the din of of sort of a low or low mid thing you know carrying out too far you just you want that it's uh you know i when i'm teaching students about setting up pedal boards or whatever i'm I always describe it as a, sh- a delay being a shadow mm-hmm. you know more than a, a really a delay it's it's a shadow of what you're doing and it follows you around mm-hmm. and nice. it, it's 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 like the um the sustained pedal for uh an acoustic piano you know it just it gives you that 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 body you know sure that that tails the note
0: nice so. Are you doing any guitars direct? Um I ask this because on "Twisted Cowboy" underneath the bass solo, there's these really great compy chords, and they sound direct. They, in fact, you've mentioned Prince; they remind me of that direct Prince kind of tone. How, how are you getting that sound?
1: Yeah, almost all the rhythm guitar is direct. Oh, okay. On the on the whole whole project, just because I've become accustomed to doing that here, yep. and it's it's rare even for distorted uh, stuff where I. Uh, mic and amp anymore. I mean, if you know, if I do another, uh, or when I do another album of of my own, uh, you know, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know if I'll if I'll go to LA and and hijack PJ's, you know, Marshall and bring it up here, or whether I'll whether I will have discovered some modeling uh plug in that I that I just think is is fantastic. There's so much great stuff. Out yeah, there sure. now, and, and I'm uh, so uh, yeah. All that rhythm guitar stuff is 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 direct right in. There's a uh, sometimes I'm going through uh, an old uh, Boss GT5 uh, effects processor. Oh yeah, just um, because I, I use that in my my studio all the time as yeah. as just a preamp. Just get a little bit of a preamp sound before I go direct into in Pro Tools. But um, yeah, most of it's straight in
0: yeah cool very good well yeah the album sounds amazing it's beautifully produced and great tunes and it's a real band effort it's a guitar album of course you're the main voice but um, there's a lot of room for your bandmates to stretch out as well which I really liked so yeah congratulations on on launching thank you so Truth Serum is the name of the album what's what's the best way for people to keep up to date with you and get a hold of the record that sort of thing
1: Uh, it's on CD baby uh mm-hmm. serum uh joe elliott and that's uh same as the guy from Def leopard two l's two t's
0: <laughs> that and, <laughs> and uh
1: uh they can go to my website which is joe elliott guitar.com mm-hmm. and that too with two l's and two t's on on elliott yeah. and um That'll direct you to CD Baby, and there's there are physical CDs available if you're if you like that, and if there are downloads available, and it's on uh, Spotify, iTunes, and uh, Apple Music, so it's not hard to find. Awesome. And uh, and I would uh, love to hear from from everybody, and uh, um, I'm getting ready to. Uh, I've been writing with with uh, Ricky Peterson, and uh, we've got. We've got enough stuff for another one, so. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Would love so, to hear that. Are you doing
0: any gigs to promote the album?
1: I will be. Uh, right now, with uh, my my obligations at the at the college where I am, McNally Smith College of Music, yeah. uh, and um, the uh, uh, sort of the scene here, some of the guys that I would use. Ricky's out of town with uh, Stevie Nicks and some of the other guys uh, his brother who plays bass for me lots he's out on the road too and um so right now my guys are are not here sure. uh, so but yeah. we'll do we'll do something later in the spring uh i'm going to la next week to do a gig at the baked potato but we'll do a, uh it'll be with a different band uh, uh is, is working with a, a singer named Anna Mjol from uh, Iceland, and, and we're doing the baked potato, and cool. we might do a couple of the the tunes that are that don't require so much rehearsal, uh, probably to open or close a set there. Okay. So sure. um but right now, uh, that I'm I'm not doing much with that band. Hope to hope to in the summer.
0: So sure. That's that sounds what I'm great. To. That sounds great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to hear about um, an incredible career, a rich and varied career, and one that's still very much in full swing. So thanks for joining us here on the Guitar Speak podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really had a ball, so thank you.
0: All right, there you go. Joe Elliott, great guy, amazing guitar player, and that new album is brilliant. So definitely check it out and Joe's website. Joe's also authored a couple of books. We didn't, we didn't get to speak about those, but he's, he's got some really great teaching materials as well, as you'd expect from a man involved in guitar education um, for decades at the highest level. All right. Hey, thank you for joining us on the Guitar Speak podcast. Remember, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the episodes, please share them around. That really helps us get the word out. We really appreciate you doing that. And we just like hearing from our listeners anyway. So give us a yell. Say hello. Um, You can email us to guitarspeakpodcast at gmail.com. Happy to talk to you over the email. All good. All right. Lots of great episodes coming up next week. Australian legend of the guitar, Brett Garset. Incredible player. Um, Had a great time talking to him. It was an honor to meet him and I'm really looking forward to sharing that interview with you as well. So keep it locked in, tune in, whatever, subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next time on the Guitar Speak podcast. Thanks so much. Bye now.